Good morning and welcome to the Trusted CI webinar for March 25th, 2019. I'm your host, Jeanette Dapheide. Trusted CI is the NSF Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, and these webinars are part of its mission to deliver high-quality, actionable guidance regarding cybersecurity to the NSF community. More information about Trusted CI can be found at trustedci.org. Today's topic is the NSF CC DNI Secure Cloud Project Automatic, autom <laughs> Autonomic pardon me, Cybersecurity for Zero Trust Cloud Computing with Marist College's Casimir DeCasatis. Before we begin, I have a few items to note. First, this presentation is being recorded. Second, participants are welcome to ask questions during the session using the chat box. So if you click on the chat icon in your uh, Zoom application, uh, you can type questions there. And we are going to try to uh, save some time at the end of the presentation for questions as well. And with that, I will hand the presentation over to Kazmer. Kazmer, welcome. Thank you very much, Jeanette. It's good to be here. And hello, everyone. I'm just going to set up my slide share so that you can see my charts and we can get started. So, uh, as you heard, my name is Kazmer Dikasatis. I'm an assistant professor at Marist College that's located in Poughkeepsie, New York, about an hour and a half north of New York City. Uh, I was PI for an NSF project under the Campus Cyber Infrastructure Data Networking Integration Program. Uh, today I'm going to talk to you about Secure Cloud, which is our project for autonomic cybersecurity in zero trust cloud computing environments. Uh, I want to acknowledge all of my co-PIs and collaborators on this, uh, in particular some Marist College faculty, uh, Professor Alan Lavasier, who is our graph database expert, uh, Professor Rob Canistra, our software-defined networking expert, uh, Professor Matt Johnson, currently our department chair and also an expert in Linux and software programming. We also collaborated closely with our CIO, Bill Thirsk. Uh, since completion of this project, he is no longer serving as CIO for Marist, but uh, we want to acknowledge all the work he's done for us over the past three years. Uh, now, this introductory slide gives you an overview of some of the many organizations that we collaborate with, both industry and academia. Uh, Marist is a member of the NSF Cyan Consortium, that's the Center for Integrated Access Networks. We are also the New York State Center for Cloud Computing and Analytics. So the governor of the state of New York has designated our college as being the focal point in New York State for cloud and analytic processing. That's going to figure heavily into the presentation I give you today. Uh, we collaborate with all of the industry and academic partners shown on this slide, and we're always open to new collaborations. So please feel free to get a hold of me after the presentation if you might be interested in working with us. Uh, what I'd like to do today is start off with a very brief one or two slide overview of the cybersecurity program at Marist College, for those of you that might not be familiar with it. Uh, then move into some of the motivation for the Secure Cloud project. Uh, then I'm going to talk about a program that we've been running in Secure Cloud for the past three years. We built a testbed and proposed some new architectural concepts for autonomic cybersecurity. The autonomic portion is analogous to your autonomic nervous system. 
we take the term from biology. So just in the way that you don't have to consciously think about activities like breathing or keeping your heartbeat going, we'd like to believe that there's some aspects of cybersecurity that can be done in an autonomic fashion without human intervention. And the challenge is to strike the right balance between these autonomic functions as well as other functions that definitely require human intervention. So I'm not saying we're going to get rid of the human cybersecurity operators. Uh, to the contrary, we have a big education program and we're doing a lot to try to close the industry-wide gap of trained cybersecurity professionals. I'm going to talk about some of the things we've developed and built in our test bed, some new honeypots, uh, a security operations center or SOC that we use for education and research, some of the applications that we're working on, including blockchain and energy management using Ethereum. Uh, and I'm going to talk about some new technologies that we're introducing uh, called first packet authentication and transport level access control. So to begin with, uh, if you're not familiar with Marist College, we are about a 6,000 student private college in upstate New York, about an hour and a half north of New York City. Uh, we have an extensive cybersecurity program starting with a high school residential program where students can earn college credit, moving into our traditional programs, a major and a minor in the field, and a SOC that we use to train students, and finally moving into an adult education program you can earn certificates in the field by taking courses online from Marist. All this was developed in response to the industry-wide shortage of security professionals. If you've worked in the field, I am sure that you're familiar with uh, publications in Chronicle of Higher Education and elsewhere, uh, which say that uh, there is a shortage of between one and a half and two million people in the field over the course of the next year. Uh, job postings are growing at double and triple digit rates with no end in sight. Cybersecurity is currently experiencing negative unemployment. And our best estimate is that four-year colleges are only meeting about a quarter of that demand. So education in cybersecurity is a very important initiative for us. Uh, students at Marist can earn a four-year bachelor's degree in cybersecurity. Uh, this includes things like um, hacking and penetration testing techniques, forensics, ethical hacking, mobile security, and a lot more, including a senior level capping project. They get experience working in our SOC with both industry tools and software we develop ourselves. In addition to that major and our minor in cybersecurity, uh, you can take a series of online classes from anywhere in the world and earn a certificate in cybersecurity from the state of New York or for students just entering the program, uh, we've been named one of the top 30 pre-college summer programs in the nation. You can take a two-week program for transferable college credit if you're a junior or senior in high school. Uh, finally, I'll note that all of our open source code and the framework I'm gonna show you today, plus a lot of our research papers, is all available on our GitHub site. I've included some extra slides in this presentation that I'm going to skip over fairly quickly so you can read them at your leisure later on. But if you'd like to delve into the details on this project, I'll encourage you to go to our Innovation Lab site on GitHub where you can read all the work we've published with IEEE, ACM, and other organizations. 
I also have to acknowledge all of our undergraduate student researchers that performed all the work I'm about to tell you about. Uh, our undergraduate students regularly attend IEEE and ACM events, including the IEEE Undergraduate Research Conference up at MIT and the Women in Engineering Forum. Uh, we regularly participate in the cybersecurity conferences at NYIT and at IBM. We send our students to international events like the SDN World Congress in Europe, uh, and many of our students are employed in the cybersecurity field once they graduate from Marist. So we're very proud of all these students. All the original work that I'm showing you would not be possible without their help. Uh, for those working in the field, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time motivating why we need to do more work in cybersecurity. Uh, this slide alone summarizes some of the major things that happened in 2017 and 2018. Uh, we found malware on nuclear power plants in the central U.S. Uh, we were hit with massive data breaches at Equifax and elsewhere, half the people in North America losing their personal data. Uh, the WannaCry ransomware swept around the world. Uh, they had to close down hospitals and reroute ambulances in the United Kingdom because of that. Uh, and we're deploying even more computers through the Internet of Things. So your automobiles, your thermostats, your baby monitors and smart vacuum cleaners, all of that and more is subject to being co-opted into botnets and used for denial of service attacks or other types of malware attacks against our infrastructure. So there's a critical need to understand how we're going to cope with all these new threats. And I'm including here advanced persistent threats from governments and nation states, as well as the world of the, the dark web and organized crime that's developed in this area. One of the biggest threats that we've tried to address is denial of service and DDoS attacks. Uh, the Secure Cloud project was aimed at developing an autonomic security framework for cloud computing environments that would enable zero trust environments. Now, I've already talked about what autonomic means. Uh, a zero trust environment is a concept that was proposed by NIST and the Forrester Group several years ago. The idea is that we're moving to uh, a new paradigm, as much as I hate to use buzzwords like that, whereas people used to think that the approach in security was trust but verify. We're moving into a new world where the approach is trust nothing, verify everything. I would like to be able to authenticate every transaction in my cloud data center, including transactions between two VMs hosted on the same physical server. That implies we have to have fairly lightweight cybersecurity that doesn't interfere with the performance of our systems. And it means we have to maintain a balance of power between our defenses and the people who are attacking us. The cost of launching a cyber attack has gone down dramatically in recent years. So we're seeing nation states attacking Marist College, not because we are an NSF site or you're certainly not a bank or an airline or anything like that, but because the cost of the attack is so low that why not? So how do we lower the cost of defense in the same way so that we can maintain a stable balance of power between attackers and defenders? 
Well, we have to supplement the things that humans do well, like visualizing attacks, with the things that machines do well, like autonomic defense. So this project took place over three years, roughly $700,000, uh, in partnership with IBM, Cisco, Siena, Brocade, and a startup called Blackridge Technology. We built a testbed that allows us to look at a new type of end-to-end -end security policy enforcement. Uh, we extended this across both the LAN and the metropolitan area network. We've tested it up to a few hundred kilometers. Uh, we've developed novel code for this that I'll be describing as we go along. Uh, and we've put this into pre-production testing so that we'll eventually be able to use it in the Marist Cloud Computing Center. Uh, one of the big advantages I think that Marist College offers is a very close hand-in-glove working relationship with our CIO. So a lot of the research I'm showing you gets moved into production very quickly. Also, we're one of the few sites in the country to focus on enterprise class computing. So we have not only IBM mainframes, but we have enterprise class cloud computing systems that we're developing as well. This next slide shows you an overview of our testbed. Uh, this is located on our campus. It's devoted exclusively to research and development work. Uh, we have three virtual data centers. It's actually located in one physical data center in our main uh, facility at Hancock Building. We have about 100 kilometers of optical fiber that we use for the WAN and the MAN. So we're not simulating fiber. We have actual optical fiber with WDM nodes attached to it. Uh, we're running things like Sienna's Metro Ethernet. We have a storage area network with Brocade and Viata products. Uh, most of the infrastructure, uh, routing and so forth, is done with Cisco equipment. Uh, and then we have, as I said, the IBM storage and server products where we run applications like blockchain and other things. I'm going to walk you through this environment one piece at a time so that you can understand the novel contributions that we've made to securing this thing end to end. And I'm going to start by talking about one of the earliest applications we developed, something that we call long tail. Now, long tail is a set of SSH honeypots as well as some analytics software. Uh, it was selected by the IEEE as part of their Tri Cybersecurity Project. So, the things that I'm talking about are available for free download in Docker containers from the IEEE site linked at the bottom of this slide. We built and deployed these honeypots uh, at about 20 locations around the Mid-Hudson Valley in New York. Uh, this includes our service provider, some local banks, credit unions, and other businesses, as well as our own cloud center. Uh, in the course of a year, uh, we're collecting on the order of 40 to 50 million data points. Uh, Marist College takes about uh, 100,000 incursion attempts every day and about 200,000 port scans of our system every day from the external internet. We try to use our enemy strengths against them by collecting data from these honeypots, running it through analytics, and looking for attack patterns. Uh, we've identified hundreds of unique attack patterns, uh, and you can go to the Longtail website linked on this slide to learn more. 
the analytics that we're using uh, includes visualizations like you see here. Uh, the long tail distribution is fairly common in cybersecurity, as well as bioinformatics and other fields. Uh, this information was taken from a talk that we gave at Cisco Live recently. Uh, you can see that if we look at things like passwords people are using, or locations of botnets, or attempts to break into root and non-root accounts, statistically this tends to follow a long-tailed distribution. Furthermore, we can use this analytics to classify and identify well-known botnets. Very brief example in our collaboration with Cisco. Uh, Cisco worked with a service provider called Level 3 back in 2015 to identify and block one of the largest botnets at the time, which they named SSH Psychos. Uh, and they published a list of all the Class C subnets that SSH Psychos was using to launch attacks against the rest of the world. Uh, at the time, in 2015, this traffic was accounting for 30 to 40% of all the traffic on the internet. Well, Cisco and Level 3 did a great job shutting these people down. But one of the problems in cybersecurity is that the attackers tend to reform their botnets. They move to new physical locations and new data centers and then spin up the same tools all over again. At Marist College, we use the long tail tool to identify and classify thousands of attack patterns against our campus. And we noticed a lot of them were coming from the same class C subnets that SSH psychos were using. Working with Cisco, we were able to confirm that SSH psychos was back in business, having relocated their software to other locations and just using the same kind of toolkit to launch further attacks. Now, it's interesting that we were able to do attack signature analysis and identify this at Marist College without involving a major international service provider. It also brings up the balance of power issue that I stated earlier. Even a relatively low value target like Marist College is being subjected to hundreds of thousands of port scans a day and lots of attempted attacks because the cost to the attacker is very low. Brute force attacks against our login screens are extremely common. So in order to maintain a stable environment, our strategy was to try to lower the cost of our defense accordingly, to automate the identification and classification of botnets. And then we collect data, such as where the attacks are coming from, if they're long or short duration, if they're using tool sets or dictionaries that we've seen before, and we are able to classify these attacks so we can very quickly mount a proportionate response. And we feel this is very important to maintaining the equality between attack and defense costs so that our cloud data centers don't get overwhelmed. Now, I realize that I'm going a little bit quickly. That's because I'm describing a three-year project in about 45 minutes. So if you'd like to know more about things like SSH psychos, Cisco's blocking attempts, I'll refer you to our GitHub site and to other resources on the internet. Having found some success with the SSH low interaction honeypots, SecureCloud then started to develop a whole host of other honeypot-related applications. These are all unique things that we've written ourselves. 
Uh, we named them after Greco-Roman deities. So what you see here is our pantheon of honeypots. Uh, we wrote what we believe is the first honeypot for software-defined networking that we nicknamed Dolos. It mimics an open daylight controller. We also have a honeypot called Pacithia that protects our graph database APIs, uh, in addition to the SSH stuff and some geolocation materials that I've described. As I'm sure you know, a honeypot is just a piece of software that mimics a real application. It's a deception technique. Its value lies in being probed, attacked, or compromised instead of having the real resources being attacked. Further, we can collect data on the people who are trying to break into our sites, and we can use that information to mount an autonomic defense. Now, let me talk a little bit about our original SDN honeypot, Dolos. Uh, we've talked about this at the IEEE meetings at MIT and elsewhere. Uh, we've currently ported this into a Python system. Uh, the Dolos honeypot was meant to draw the attacker's fire away from our SDN controller, which is a high-value resource. So it's important that it does two things. First of all, it has to look exactly like a real controller when you fingerprint it. And secondly, it has to be able to keep running when you subject it to a DDoS attack. The graph on the left shows a comparison between our honeypot and a real SDN open daylight controller fingerprinted with five different tools. The blue bars show the percentages that are the same. The orange shows differences. Bottom line is we look a lot like a controller to most attackers. The graph on the right uh, is a performance measurement summary. It shows uh, the response time of our system versus number of requests against the honeypot for different levels of concurrent requests. Uh, bottom line is that we can stand up to a fairly strong DDoS attack and the honeypot won't go down. So using this technology, we were able to start collecting data on people who were attacking the campus. We visualize this in a number of different ways. Uh, we have an open source log parser called Graylog that analyzes it. Uh, we also wrote our own attack map, which is in the lower right-hand corner. We use this to simulate attacks. We also work with the production geolocation map, which is in the lower left-hand corner of this slide. So our production and student-based maps are based off of the MaxMind database. Of course, geolocation is not an exact science. Uh, there are ways to use proxies and VPNs and other things to fake these sites out. Uh, but we have a reasonably accurate geolocation system, and that's some of the parameters that we collect through our honeypots. Now that we have this big data set of raw attack telemetry, we have to process it into useful threat intelligence. So we have written our own SIEM, and we run that in our security operations center. Uh, our SOC had its grand opening in September of 2018. If you've ever been inside a production level SOC at a big bank or a credit card company or something, it looks much like what you see in these pictures. We have four large computer screens at the front of the room. Each has their own touchscreen whiteboard and web browser integrated. We can cast from those screens to any of the 32 computers in the room where our students sit to mimic the work of tier one, two, and three security analysts. 
If you're interested in learning more about this, we have two videos up on YouTube, which are linked on this slide. They're about 10 minutes long each. Uh, they're meant to be a little bit lighthearted and humorous to draw your attention, and they'll give you a little bit more detail about the sort of things that we do in our research and education SOC. This is separate from the SOC that is used to defend our campus, but we do take five-minute time-delayed data from real attacks and use that in our student training environment. So having a working SOC just for the students is an important part of our education program. Of course, we use commercially available tools like IBM QRadar and the Cisco Umbrella family of products. QRadar is an SIEM that lets us visualize and classify attack patterns. Cisco Umbrella includes things like their Firepower Threat Defense Toolkit, uh, their OpenDNS, uh, their CloudLock security system, Cisco Threat Intelligence databases, and a lot more. Uh, several of our students have talked about this at the IEEE Women in Engineering forums. We have customized the dashboards and linked the IBM and Cisco tools together to demonstrate open source connectivity. We also wrote our own SIEM. We call it LCARS, the Lightweight Cloud Analytics for Real-Time Security. And yes, we borrowed the name from Star Trek The Next Generation. That's just how we roll. LCARS allows us to take raw data from our honeypots, parse it, and classify it. We can use visualizations such as hive plots to show us what's going on, and then we feed that result into an orchestrator that we wrote that reconfigures our firewalls, uh, security policy, trust levels, and other defenses in an autonomic fashion. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this next slide, and I'm certainly not going to read it to you but it talks about how we developed the connection between LCARS and the honeypots, and it talks about a dozen or so parameters that we collect, including timestamps of the attack, source and destination, IP and MAC address, and more. We've also done some very interesting visualization work with hive plots. If you're not familiar, a hive plot is a multi-axis depiction of the data, as shown here. We borrow this from bioinformatics as well. And the idea behind hive plots is they don't introduce artifacts into the visualization. This particular one is showing me a visualization of a denial of service attack. You can see how lots of different timestamps and source IP addresses are hammering against one particular port in our cloud. Uh, we've used three, four, and five axis hive plots like this to identify and classify lots of different attacks. And again, I'll refer you to some of our publications for more detail. We also use a graph analytics database uh, called GSTAR and GSTAR Studio in order to do force plots like the ones shown on this slide. This is the same thing that Facebook and other social media companies use to figure out when it's your best friend's birthday and connect you to other people that you know. Using these analytics, we can do things like define centrality, common points that are often attacked. We can identify outliers things that are infrequently attacked. We can look for patterns, frequency distributions, all sorts of types of statistical analysis, which are visualized either through the force diagrams, the hive plots, or both, so that our human operators can understand what the autonomic systems are doing. We've also started integrating this with some machine learning techniques. 
Um, this slide shows how we use different machine learning algorithms to predict future attacks based on historical data. We have additional work going on in this area right now. One of the biggest challenges is coming up with a large, high-quality data set free from artifacts that represents realistic attack patterns. We have some ongoing work and proposals for future research to expand our efforts in machine learning. Once we have access to this information, we can start using it to mount an appropriate defense. So I'm going to talk a little bit now about some technology that we've developed with one of our partners, a startup called Blackridge Technology. Uh, we protect our real SDN controllers by using Blackridge's techniques and also using a 10 gig optical bypass switch so that we don't uh, throttle the input and output data flowing to the controller. Uh, and we're developing some things called first packet authentication with transport access control. So I'd like to take a moment now and talk about how this works. Traditional authentication techniques uh, take place after a session has already been established with your server. Um, we've developed a first packet authentication technique that authenticates the user when we make the very first SYN packet request for a three-way handshake to spin up a session. We know that it's best practice to identify attacks as early as possible. We are literally looking at the very first packet that goes from the client to the server requesting a session. This technology takes a 64-bit cryptographic token, which has time limitations and other best practices, inserts it into that first packet, and then authenticates it with another appliance at the far end of the link. So we can bookend an untrusted network with two software appliances and authenticate transactions between them. And these are lightweight enough that we can place them on mobile or IoT devices or other places in the network. You can think of it like caller ID for the internet. I don't have to actually answer my cell phone and start talking to someone to see who's calling me. I can just look at the caller ID that comes up when they first dial my number. In the same way, first packet authentication will authenticate whether or not someone is an authorized user of my cloud. If they're authorized, I let them in. If they're not, then I block everything at the transport layer and below. So before the session's even established, I'm blocking transport layer and below. All their port scans, all their reconnaissance. If they can't do reconnaissance, they can't see the resources, and they can't attack them. That's why Blackridge calls this cloaking technology. It was originally developed for military-grade applications, and now it's being used for commercial systems. It's lightweight enough that we can deploy it on smartphones or IoT devices. It has very low deterministic latency. Uh, we believe it scales to huge numbers of identities, so I can deploy this both within and outside my cloud to achieve the first steps towards a zero-trust environment. I'm going to show you some performance data where we identify and block DDoS attacks at line rate without the system slowing down or crashing. We've shown this in production on IBM's Linux One Community Cloud. This is the production platform that IBM rolled out in 2015 
to allow anyone in the world to request a free instance of their Linux One servers. It's done in collaboration with Marist College. Uh, so we have multiple data centers. We have the Marist Cloud Computing Center. We have the IBM Client Center. Uh, and we insert the Blackridge gateway technologies on either end of this. So the only people who are authorized to request a presence in the IBM Linux One cloud are the ones that get through our cloud-based cybersecurity system. We found some very interesting things when we tested this. Uh, we blocked uh, an additional 18,000 attacks in the first 10 days the system was up and running. We collected data from those attacks, and some of it you see here. The top countries who attacked us, the top IP addresses. Um, we have people from all over the world trying to break into the IBM Linux One system. Our first packet authentication with transport access control is extremely effective at stopping these attacks. To show how effective it is, we ran three different use cases. The top of this slide shows average attacks against this Maris network. We get five to 10,000 attacks per day against the Linux One cloud. Then we put in a conventional intrusion protection system like the Juniper SRX platform. As you can see, this takes down the number of attacks significantly, two orders of magnitude, uh, to about 10, 20, 30, 50 attacks per day on average. But then in addition to that, we implement first packet authentication with transport access control, bookended on top of that cloud system. And the number of attacks that get through drops to zero. And it stays at zero for one month, two months, three months for an extended period of time. So we were able to quantify the improvement of using first packet authentication with transport access control over conventional intrusion protection systems. This is just some more data. Uh, the left and right shows before and after we turned on transport access control. On the left hand, you can see there's some open ports that the attackers can use to get a foothold. Uh, on the right-hand side, the attackers don't see open ports because we're blocking them with transport access control. So you literally can't fingerprint the IBM Linux One cloud because if you're an unauthorized user, we're blocking all of your port scans. We're doing this without compromising performance. Without going into detail in the interest of time, this slide shows a summary of some performance measurements we made. We found there was no rate limiting due to our cybersecurity up to a running data rate of about 14 or 15 megabits per second. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the results were that we were able to block 100% of cyber attacks directed against the IBM Linux One community cloud. Uh, we were able to automatically identify and block DDoS attacks, if we see a certain number of attacks in a certain period of time, we automatically put somebody on a blacklist. And we can leave them on that blacklist for anywhere from seconds to minutes to forever, depending on our security policy. <clears throat> Not only can we block external threats, we can also block insider threats, as I'm showing on this chart. In this case, I have a trusted user on the left-hand side who is authorized to access certain resources in our cloud. 
What happens if that trusted insider tries to access resources that they're not authorized for? Well, the Blackridge Gateway can detect this. We block their access, and then we pluck that out of the logs with our gray log parsing system, send a post message to our orchestrator, and the orchestrator calls the API on the Blackridge appliance and adjusts the trust level. So we can implement up to eight dynamically configurable trust levels on this system. Everything from allow all the traffic to block all the traffic. If the user inside our network is trying to reach some resource that they're not authorized for, we give them a warning, block them, and knock their access level down by one. We've programmed a policy that says if you make three unauthorized access attempts inside the network, we block you from everything, and you have to go back and see the system's administrator to get your privileges reinstated. So dynamic control of eight different trust levels is one way that our autonomic systems help protect against insider threats. We've also shown that we can stop port scans and external threats like DDoS attacks using automated blacklisting. <clears throat> In particular, we've done some tests stopping what's known as a Bleckenbacher attack. The Bleckenbacher attacks go back to vulnerabilities that were existing in the RSA encryption system way back at its earliest inception. Uh, designers were aware of this, but they really were not able to make fundamental changes to stop it. In an RSA key exchange, which allows you to uh, extract information about the keys and eventually break the encryption. There's a lot of variations on the Bleckenbacher attack, as shown on this slide. I'm not going to go through all of them. Sufficient to say it's been around for a long time, and it keeps cropping up over and over again. We've demonstrated that we can block 100% of Bleckenbacher attacks using transport access control. We block the port scans. We block the ports where Bleckenbacher typically gets a foothold. And uh, we block the TLS error messages that provide information leakage that's used to decrypt your RSA keys. So we've run numerous tests against both external and internal Bleckenbacher attacks, proving that we can stop them using transport level security. Now, inside our data centers, we have a number of interesting applications that we're protecting with all this cloud security. I'd like to take a few minutes towards the end of my presentation here and talk about those. Uh, the first is a set of blockchain work that we've done with uh, open source techniques like Hyperledger. We're big believers in open source technology. Uh, using the Hyperledger fabric and working with IBM, we developed a blockchain smart contract that's used to prevent fraud in nonprofit organizations. It turns out that fraud against charitable organizations is about a $40 billion a year problem. And since these are nonprofits, the fraud hits those groups that can least afford to lose money. In order to get around that, we put together an autonomic smart contract in blockchain. It validates all the transactions between the charity group, the foundation that's giving them money, like the Ford Foundation or something like that, 
and the trustees who are supervising deployment of these charitable programs. And again, without going into too much detail, uh, we are able to show that a blockchain smart contract mitigates fraud against nonprofits. All the security on these systems is done with our uh, security that was developed for the secure cloud system, uh, including the Blackridge technologies, the IBM technologies that we prototyped in the Linux One cloud, uh, and everything else that was in our secure cloud testbed. So blockchain seems to have some real business value in this case using smart contracts. We also looked at a set of applications related to energy management. Uh, there's about a billion people in the world that lack access to basic electricity services. And even in civilized places like North America, the falling cost of solar panels and other technology means that people can cost effectively build small microgrids to power their systems. There's a big effort going on in Brooklyn, New York called the Transactive Grid Project, which is doing some great work in this area if you want to read more about it. But what about cybersecurity? If I put solar panels on the roofs of all my buildings and I link them together in a microgrid so that I minimize my dependencies on a centralized power plant, how stable is that against a cyber attack? Well, we simulated a microgrid with 10 buildings based in upstate New York, and we looked at what happens if you launch a cyber attack against the smart meters that are mounted on the side of your buildings to monitor electricity usage. Left-hand slide shows a normal energy balance over the course of a 24-hour period. It's a nice, smooth, stable transition between these 10 buildings, and sometimes the balance goes negative, which means you have to call on an external power plant to make up the slack. We found that on a microgrid of 10 sites, you just have to destabilize two of those smart meters in order to go from an energy balance on the left to the energy balance on the right. When we're spoofing the identities of smart meters, sending them false data, we can radically destabilize the grid. So putting cybersecurity around smart meters is very important. Uh, we believe that the first packet authentication and transport access control that we've been developing is lightweight enough that you could put it on Internet of Things applications like a smart meter and build in a level of security that will protect against these type of attacks. That way you don't have to worry about threat agents destabilizing your electric power grid. We have a lot of work going on adapting this security to Internet of Things devices. Kasper? Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. Uh, I just, we got a question a couple of uh, slides ago about the blockchain. Of course. I'm sorry. Go no, right that's, ahead. That's okay. It's a question about the nonprofit example. Is it a permissioned Hyperledger-based implementation or open and permissionless? Okay, that's a good question. I'll just step back to that slide. This is a uh, permission-based system. If you look at the flowchart in the middle of this diagram, uh, each one of these entities, the charity, the foundation, and the trustee, are assigned an identity on the blockchain network. And we build a smart contract, which means there's a set of criteria that have to be addressed before funding moves from the foundation through the trustee out to the charity. 
So for example, if the charitable organization was someone who's supposed to dig a set of 10 freshwater wells on the other side of the world, we need independent verification of that before funds are released. All that is guarded by smart contracts on a blockchain. Fascinating, thank you. My pleasure. And again, I realize I'm going through a lot of things at a very high level fairly quickly. I'll encourage you to check out our GitHub site or some of the papers like the one I've cited here uh, from an IEEE conference in Las Vegas this past January that goes into a lot more technical detail. I've put a, a link to the uh, GitHub in our, our group chat here so people can grab that. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Are there any other questions right now? Nope. Uh, please continue. All right. Good. So I was talking about our Internet of Things lab. Uh, we have all the standard uh, smart home devices that you'd be familiar with from Google and Amazon Alexa and so forth. Um, smart light bulbs, doorbells, cameras, drones, vacuum cleaners, you name it. Uh, all of this stuff is tied together through a set of uh, routers and hubs. Uh, we're experimenting with mesh network design. So we can do more than simulate botnet DDoS attacks. We can actually look at how these devices are co-opted into botnets and then how those botnets show up when they do signature-based attacks against our cloud. Uh, part of the IoT is those smart energy meters that I talked about for the Ethereum-based microgrid project. Another part of it is digital healthcare systems. So we're looking at things that monitor heart rate, blood oxygen content, and a lot more uh, so that people don't have to stay in the hospital as long. They can be sent home with a little patch that monitors their vitals dynamically, sends it to the cloud, and uses all the secure cloud techniques developed by this project to keep that data secure, private, and fully HIPAA compliant. We do a lot of wireless pen testing against this system as well. So it's not just a traditional wired network. Uh, using things like uh, you know, AirPCAP, the Wi-Fi Pineapple, and a lot of other tools, we can do wireless pen testing against this secure cloud technology. So we think Internet of Things is a very fertile area for doing cybersecurity research, uh, and we have a lot of active projects going on in that area right now. To try to summarize all of this, uh, I want to point out that uh, the technique we've described might look familiar to you because it has the characteristics of uh, an OODA loop. Uh, that's observe, uh, orient, decide, and act. Uh, it was a technique developed by the Air Force many years ago. Uh, it was also uh, illustrated by the Deming cycle, plan, do, check, act. It's a four-phase cycle with a feedback loop that we use as our model for autonomic zero-trust security. So we start at the top of this figure with a bunch of bad actors coming in against our attack surface. Key resources like our SDN controller are cloaked using first packet authentication with transport access control. The bad actors can't see the cloaked resources. All they can see is our honeypots, which are mimicking them. We use an array of these honeypots to collect raw data telemetry. We feed that into our data analysis program to turn it into actionable threat intelligence. 
So this is a combination of commercial tools like IBM Q Radar and Cisco Umbrella uh, with the GSTAR database, as well as the LCARS SIEM that we wrote ourselves. We do visualization with hive plots, force diagrams, and other sorts of things. Classify honey pots, do source attribution with geolocation. Then we come up with an attack profile. Our reconfigurator or our orchestrator takes attack profiles against our system, looks up predefined response recipes, and then it goes back and it changes the trust levels or the properties of our firewalls, our access control lists, blocks certain ports if a Bleckenbacher attack is underway, and so forth. Uh, and in this manner, we have an iterative system that we use to dynamically block attacks against the cloud. Uh, our future work in this area includes more work with machine learning and artificial intelligence, larger honey farms to get better high quality data sets, and additional analytics work to supplement the visualization that we've already done with honeypots. Uh, and with that, I want to wrap up my presentation. There's some additional slides that have references to our technical work. One more time, I'll encourage you to visit our GitHub site for the Marist Innovation Lab. Uh, and I want to thank uh, the National Science Foundation, uh, the Marist Cloud Computing and Analytics Center, uh, our Dean Roger Norton, our CIO Bill Thirsk, and all of my other collaborators who made this work possible over the last three years. Please feel free to reach out to me after this presentation if you'd like to learn more or if you'd like to talk about collaborations with Secure Cloud and the Marist Cloud Computing Center. And with that, I want to thank everyone for their time and their attention, and I will pass control of this back over to our sponsor. Thanks, Kazmer. Um, I'm going to give people a little bit of time to type some questions in. I already see one in the queue. Uh, so I'd like to pull up our slides, because uh, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on with Trusted CI. Okay. And um, so first, uh, if, if you are available uh, right at this moment, please, uh, you can grab this link here to take our survey. Just post that here in the chat. Uh, I will be including the link to the survey in the presentation, in the follow-up email. So just be on the lookout for that. Let us know your feedback, and if you have any suggestions for speakers or if you'd like to present, we've got a, a comment field in the survey for that. And then we've got, so we've got a couple of things going on with Trusted CI, and this, Casmer, actually, you might be interested in. Um, June 19th, we are, present, we are hosting the Cybersecurity Technology Transition to Practice Workshop in Chicago. Um, it is uh, sponsored by Trusted CI, uh, Microsoft, and uh, Indiana University. And um, if you are interested in hearing more about what the uh, TTP workshop's goals are or to apply for an invitation because seating is limited, so we need to, to screen invitations, please go to trustedci.org slash TTP. Uh, also, our engagement application window is closing. Um, if you are interested, those of you in attending this webinar, if you're interested in applying for an, uh, an engagement with Trusted CI, please send in your application before April or by April 3rd. And then we also launched the Fellows Program uh, uh, last month, 
and we the application to become a trusted CI fellow has ended but I want those of you who are watching to please be on the lookout for updates when uh, the program is is launched with the with the approved fellows because uh, there will be uh, some content that they will be sending out and then finally uh, the Next Trusted CI webinar is April 22nd at 11 a.m. Eastern. Our topic is supporting controlled unclassified information with a campus awareness and risk management framework. And our speakers are Justin Yang and colleagues. And we've got a couple of questions here in the queue, which is great. Uh, so first, can you talk about how the Black Ridge Tech is deployed is it add-on software or modified network stack? Okay, so the Blackridge technology can be done either in hardware or software. We've had some people in enterprise level clouds who prefer a separate piece of hardware. So there's a box for that. You can bookend your network. The preferred way to do it I think is software. So it's, it uh, does not modify the network stack. It's an add-on piece of software that would sit on the client who's being authenticated and the server on the far end of the network that inserts tokens on one end and authenticates them on the other. Okay, I, I'll wait for, for a comment to see if uh, that answers the question, but we'll, uh, we'll pop back to the next one. Um, oh, Anurag says yes. Okay, great. Uh, so the next one. Uh, is anyone working on changes to routing protocols to push rejection back to ISPs when an address is blacklisted? Uh, at this point, we're looking at it. Uh, we have not deployed anything like that. Uh, one of the issues that we run into is where is the appropriate place to implement stopping these type of attacks, right? We get many, many denial of service attacks against us every day. We don't want to inundate the ISP with information about these. So we would like to bring them into our OODA control loop. We're looking at ways to do that, but as of now, we don't have anything implemented. Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned this, uh, this blacklist because NCSA actually has a black hole router uh, site that they make available on their GitHub. I'll just post that right real quick if anyone's interested in this topic. Uh, so check that out if, you, if you're curious. Uh, let's see, let's go to the next question. Thanks for presenting an impressive breadth of security research. Could you recommend a next step for campus cloud operator in, interested in deploying enhanced cloud security controls related to your security research? Wow, well, a uh, next step for campus operators. Well, all of our stuff is available open source. So you can go to our GitHub site and you can get our honeypots and you can get our LCARS system. Feel free to start playing with that and fork it if you're interested. Or you can go to that IEEE Tri Cybersecurity site, the Tri Sibsi site that was in my slides. You get a Docker container which has our SSH honeypot and access to some of our long tail analytics and you can start playing with that as a starting point to get familiar with the technology. Oh great, he says thanks. Okay, uh, let's do a last round. Um, another person said thank you for sharing all the resources. Resources. It was very interesting. I agree. Uh, I'm, I'm sure people will find these slides very helpful. 
let's take our last call for questions. Um, we could always go over if, if uh, we keep getting questions, but uh, let's wait just a moment here because sometimes people take a, a minute to type in. Uh, so uh, while people are typing, uh, I just want to say, Kazmir, thank you so much for presenting. This was uh, very interesting. I noticed a lot of overlap with some of the different technologies that you're using and some of the things that um, that are going on here at NCSA and even at uh, Trusted CI. Uh, Trusted CI announced a partnership with IU's uh, Research SOC, and that is a partnership with uh, Duke University, Pittsburgh Supercomputing, and um, UC... Um, I'm forgetting, <laughs> uh, UC San Diego, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, similar research going on, uh, with Marist College. So this is very enlightening, uh, presentation. Oh, great. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate the opportunity to share this with everybody. And I think we've reached the end of our questions. So, uh, do you have any more comments or, or anything else to say, Kazmer, before we wrap things up? Uh, not really. Again, I just want to thank everybody for their time and attention this morning. All my contact information is on the slides. If you think of any questions afterwards, do not hesitate to send me an email or reach out to me. And I'll be happy to talk to you more about this. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, everybody, for attending, and I will stop the recording.